0: this morning's reading is from first timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 i urge then first of all that requests prayers intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness this is good and pleases god our savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the truth, true faith to the Gentiles." And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Mike, for reading, and I'm grateful to Matt for the invitation to preach this morning. My name is Christopher Ash, and Carolyn and I are uh, glad to be part of Christchurch Mayfair. We've been Uh, part of this church since about last October, and we're glad of that. I'd be grateful if you would turn back to the first reading that Mike read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, page 1192 in the church Bibles, the the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, and uh, when you've got there I'll pray for God's help. God, our Father, please help me as I preach to do so faithfully. Please help each one of us to listen with uh, humble and trusting and obedient hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, today is our World Focus Sunday. Today we celebrate the imposition of Christianity as an alien religion upon other cultures, and the destruction of other cultures by Christian mission. Today we <laughs> rejoice that all over the world human cultures are being invaded and sometimes destroyed by Christianity. Well, you say to me, um, must you put it like that? That wasn't the way we were trying to project the focus of Today. But we need to face the fact that it is how many other people think uh, of what we're thinking about today. Just over three years ago, the British Museum put on uh, one of their magnificent exhibitions about Moctezuma, the last of the Aztec rulers uh, before the conquistador under Cortes, the the Spanish, um, invaded. And it was a magnificent exhibition. But in the introduction, the um, director of the museum said, you know, the, the audio guides you, can, you could hire, huh. he said how sad it was that when the Spanish invaded, in his words, a sophisticated Native American civilization was destroyed and an alien religion and government was imposed in its place. And when the director of the British Museum said that, he was in tune with most of our culture. Most of our culture would have said that's exactly what happened. An alien religion was put in place. Now, my my hunch is that when most of us think about Christian mission, some of those misgivings from our culture seep into our own thinking. And if you add to those misgivings, just the sense that maybe there's something slightly disreputable about it, if you add to that the difficulty of crossing cultures and the costliness of it, we have a powerful drug to keep us at home. Charity begins at home, we say, and it would be much more comfortable if charity ended at home. So while many of us, at a push, we will invite work colleagues or our fellow students or neighbors from our own culture to something at church, when someone says, what about the possibility of devoting your life to bringing the gospel of Christ to another culture. It just feels over the top, and we're quick with excuses. Or for that matter, giving financially to support the work of bringing Christ to other cultures. After all, we've got a deficit in our home church. Isn't that a priority? Is it really as necessary as all that? It feels like an optional extra for the very keen Christian. And so what I want to do with God's help, as I want to look this morning at just a part of the Bible's argument for, 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 for this. I've chosen just these seven verses at the beginning of uh, chapter 2 of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's church leader uh, in Ephesus. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that he says to Timothy, stay there in Ephesus. And uh, Timothy is, is there in Ephesus seeking to lead the church. And there's lots wrong with the church in Ephesus. But it seems from chapter 1 that one of the things that's wrong with the church in Ephesus is that they had become inward-looking and introspective. They'd certainly become quarrelsome and divided. But it seems that one of the things Paul wants to do is to get them looking outwards. And his his instruction to Timothy begins in chapter 2. Uh, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, here is the first instruction. I'm going to divide this in five. On the back of your service sheet, you'll see the the uh, points that I'm hoping uh, to make. He tells them what to pray for in verses 1 and 2. He tells them it pleases God in verses 3 and 4. He tells them at the beginning of verse 5 that there's one God. He tells them in the rest of verse 5, in the beginning of verse 6, that there's one mediator and then finally, he tells them that there needs to be proclamation, there needs to be a herald. And in this little passage, there's a tremendous emphasis on everyone. Just have a look. Verse 1, uh, for pre- uh, prayers for everyone, the end of verse 1. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. Uh, verse 4, God wants all, all men, all people to be saved. Verse 6, a ransom for all men, all people. And then l- verse 7, at the end of verse 7, true faith to the Gentiles, which means everybody else, the rest of the world. It's a kind of rest-of-the-world um, word. And so I want, what I want to do with God's help is to um, take us through the argument stage by stage and, as we do, to, to, to think how me, we might uh, respond. Before I do that, though, Let me tell you about um, a Welshman. I think after the disappointment of yesterday, it would be good to encourage the Welsh. (laughs) Let me tell you about a Welshman. His name was Robert Thomas, which is a good Welsh name. He was a, a linguist, and he was a medic, and in 1864, he joined the China Inland Mission. He was 24 years old, and he sailed for China with his young wife. Shortly after they arrived in China, this 24-year-old, his, uh, their, their first baby was born and died, and then very shortly after that, his wife died. And this young man, heartbroken, went on into what was then the closed, the so-called hermit kingdom of Korea, closed to the gospel, closed to outsiders, and he began to distribute Bibles, And then as he was traveling, the ship he was traveling on caught fire. The whole crew was killed. He leapt overboard with a few remaining Bibles in a pack, and he swam to shore, and he began handing out his few remaining Bibles to those who would listen, which was illegal in that closed kingdom. He was promptly arrested and condemned to death. He begged the soldier who was going to execute him to take his last Bible. The soldier took it, and then he cut his head off beheaded him, aged 27. And most people would say, what a waste. What a stupid thing to do. What a stupid thing to try to impose an alien religion on a culture like that. The Bibles that he'd distributed were torn up. They were used as wallpaper. But people began to read them as wallpaper, out of sheer curiosity. And 20 years later, when some other christians went into got access to korea they found uh, there was a living church there now that's one of those great 19th century missionary stories that inspire us and think how good the welsh are but uh, they, they they do inspire us but for the most part cross cultural bringing of the message of christ is not quite the same as that that courageous welshman but there is a cost to it And if we're going to pay the cost, we need to understand the Bible's arguments. So let's have a look at them. So first of all, Paul says, verses 1 and 2, we should pray for all kinds of people to be Christian. I urge then, he says first of all, that prayers, uh, requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, the whole business of bringing people before God be made for everyone. That's all kinds of people, and particularly for kings and those in authority. That is influential people. People who shape societies. And he says, please pray for them that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And someone says, praying that we may live peaceful and quiet lives doesn't look like cross-cultural mission. It looks like letting sleeping cultures lie. But actually it isn't, because to pray that Christian people can live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness is to pray that cultures and societies, that people will become Christian and that those societies will be changed Christianly. Just go back to those noble Aztecs for a moment. Those who, who went round that, muse, that British Museum exhibition will have discovered that the Aztec um, Empire was structured around a religious need for aggressive warfare, and that the gods they worship demanded not just that they fight, but they fight aggressively, and that they feed the gods with blood. So there was a a, a pyramid temple, and the museum had, had, had said that round it there was a glorious song of praise to warfare and conquest, and the highest th- honor you could, could get as a young man was to become an eagle warrior, which meant that you'd fed enough blood, and the blood was the human sacrifices of the people you'd killed. And as I went round the exhibition, I thought to myself, no director of the British Museum. I don't think, I don't think it's sad that that culture has been destroyed. I have no brief to speak for Cortes and the Conquistador. It seems to me the kind of Christianity they brought in was dressed in Western clothes and was a distorted Christianity in many ways, but they did not offer human sacrifice. And I don't think it's a sadness when a society that is ungodly and violent like that is destroyed. But it's a deeper thing that I want us to grasp today about Christianity than that. But before we go on from from Paul saying pray for people, pray for godliness and holiness, pray that societies will become Christian in some measure, Pray that there will be people becoming Christian and there'll be a godliness and a love and a changed lives amongst those, those, those people. Pray for that. I just want to ask the question, why does he begin with prayer? Why doesn't he say go and give? Why does he say pray? The Lord Jesus does the same in Matthew chapter 9. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field, pray. And Paul is doing what the Lord Jesus did, which is addressing the deep affections of our hearts. And he's saying to us, if you and I begin to pray for people all over the world, for different cultures, different societies, different influential people, then our hearts will begin to line up with our prayers. And when our hearts line up with our prayers, then it's a small step to give and for some to go, and to show a lively interest, and to support others. Because our prayers express our deepest desires, or at least they ought to. A story is told of a wealthy Christian family, and in their family prayers, the father was, was leading them in prayer one breakfast time, I think, for um, the, the, the material needs of a mission partner of their church, praying that God would provide what this mission partner needed materially in terms of money, at which point, um, his young son said, Dad, if I had your checkbook, I could answer your prayer. <laughs> but when our prayers are, are, are praying for all kinds of people, then it's a short step for us to, 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 to work. One of the joys of working at the Cornhill Training Course, uh, where I work, is that uh, over the eight or nearly nine years I've been there so far, We've had a number of uh, British students going out in cross-cultural mission and a number of, of students from other countries coming to us and then going back to their home countries. And I was just thinking quickly of the number of prayer letters I get from Thailand, Japan, South Africa, Ghana, Sierra Leone, the Gambia, Rwanda, Uganda, Slovakia, Serbia, France, Belgium, Czech Republic, India, Pakistan, Laos, Cambodia, China, Nigeria, Kenya, Ethiopia, Russia, and probably more. But it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. If I can't go to be part of that, just to be to be praying and to be part of a work of seeing what God is doing all around the world. So Paul says, pray. And then he begins to give his reasons. Verses 3 and 4. Pray, he says, for all kinds of people, because God wants all kinds of people to be saved. It's important that we pray in line with God, what God wants, isn't it? We know for Christian people that we're we're to pray according to the will of God, according to what pleases God. Sometimes we don't know what pleases God. If we or someone we love is ill, we naturally pray for them to get better, but we don't know that that's God's will. Somebody loses their job, we pray for them to get a job. We don't know that that's God's will. Someone wants to get married, we pray for them to get married. We don't know that that's God's will. Married couple longing for a child, we pray for that. We don't know that that's God's will. There are many things in life where we don't know that it's God's will. But we do know that it's God's will for all kinds of people all over the world to be saved. Because Paul tells us that here. It pleases God to pray for that. He wants all, all men, all kinds of people all over the world to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And when Paul teaches that, he's exactly in line with the Lord Jesus who taught that there was more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the many who don't need repentance. The good shepherd always going after the lost sheep. Now, when Paul says God wants all men, all people to be saved, we need to understand that by that he means all kinds of people from all over the world. And the Lord Jesus particularly warned us that there is a judgment and that there is a hell, and that hell will not be empty. So this is not a verse that can encourage us to think that all will be well for everybody come what may. That would completely undermine the logic of the gospel and the urgency of the gospel. But what he's saying is that it pleases God that all kinds of people, it pleases God that at the end of time, round the throne in heaven, there will be men and women from every language, every tribe, every culture, and every age. And that is, that is God's pleasure. So when we pray for cross-cultural mission, we are praying in line with God's will. We're not wasting our prayers. And then he goes on, and he says we pray uh, this is God's will because, verse, uh, verse 5, there is one God. Very easy to skip over that. If you've been in church for years you read in the Bible, there is one God, you skip over that and you think, let's get on to the interesting bits. But the statement, there is one God, is a massive, massive statement. That's why we had for the other reading, the famous Shema, the Hear, O Israel, one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the God of the Bible the God whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he is the one and only true God. And I just want to say a word about that so that we don't skip straight over it. And it's this. There are, of course, and the Bible recognizes this, all sorts of gods and goddesses in the world. Every time a human being devotes their life and their adoration and their energies and their worship to some goal, and they make that their ultimate good, they have created a god or a goddess. And the Bible calls these idols. Other religions have gods. Hinduism has multiple gods. There are many, many gods. But the difference is this, that there is one god who if every human being ceased to exist, he would still exist. If every human being ceased to exist, if the human race were wiped out of existence, all the gods of other religions, this is very unpolitically correct to say, all the gods of other religions would cease to exist. All the idols of our culture would cease to exist because these gods are the creation of the imagination of the human heart and human culture. But there is one God who is objectively there. And he exists whether or not we exist. And his existence means that creation coheres, means that in the language of the Bible the, the, the world is built on pillars. It has a stability. The Bible is not like um, a country that is disintegrating, like Yugoslavia after the death of Marshal Tito, just disintegrating. That's what the world will be like. It's what, the world, what many people think the world is like, but the world is not like that. The world is one world because it's under one God who holds the world together. And that means that if you and I are alienated from that God, we are alienated from the ultimate nature of reality. And ultimately, to be reconciled to that God is our deepest need. And that means that when a message comes to a people bringing them, the possibility of reconciliation with the one objective, real God, that that religion and that message being brought to them is not an alien religion. It may be dressed in some other cultural dress, but it is not fundamentally an alien religion. It is fundamentally a religion that is bringing them back into reconciliation with the one God who rules the world. And that's a wonderful thing, there is one God. But then Paul goes on and he says, there is one mediator. Verse 5, there is one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and people, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, all kinds of people. God has provided one go-between. The man, Christ Jesus, fully human. One of us, and yet at the same time fully God, the only one who could bridge the gulf, the only one who could die to be a ransom, the only one who could take in his own body the, the righteous anger of God himself against sinners. God bearing upon his, his himself our sin and our punishment. Jesus is unique. There is no other mediator. There is no other bridge, there is no other way for men and women to be reconciled to the one true God. Jesus has no competitors. Jesus has no successors, because only Jesus died to pay the price of sin. Now, this is a deep truth, but it's a wonderful truth. There's no other mediator because there's no other ransom. I was reading the story of a a Japanese Christian leader, in the 20th century, called uh, Toyohiko Kagawa. And he wrote about the religions he was brought up with um, in his culture in Japan, of Shintoism and Buddhism, and also I think he was influenced by Confucianism. And he wrote, he, he wrote I owe much to, to, to those in one way or another. He t- talked about some of the things that he'd learnt from Shintoism and Buddhism and Confucianism in terms of uh, some of the moral values and and the ethics and so on. But then he said, yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to my heart's deepest need. I was a pilgrim upon a long, long road that had no turning. I was weary. I was footsore. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has declared, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. And the uniqueness of Christianity is not just the uniqueness of the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is also the uniqueness of the mediator and the ransom for sin. And when you and I engage with people of other cultures or of our own culture, and they, they they know that there's something wrong with the world, any thoughtful person knows there's something wrong with the world and something wrong with us. And we want to say to them, yes, there is something wrong, and what's wrong with the world is our sinfulness. The fact that we're messed up by other people and the fact that we ourselves mess up and mess up other people And we're guilty for our sinfulness. And unless a religion or a philosophy can deal with sin, it cannot be right. So all sorts of philosophies and religions may say some things that are true. And there may be things that are true and even beautiful in them, here and there. But unless there's a mediator, unless there is a mediator to bring human beings into relationship with the one true God, Ultimately, they cannot be true. And so the final leg of Paul's argument at the end of verse 6 is the need for proclamation. Because the mediator was a man, Christ Jesus, who came in human history, his coming, his teaching, his life, his miracles, and above all, his death and resurrection needed to be attested by human witnesses because this is not a mystical thing, it's a, it's a historical thing. And so Paul says, at the end of verse 6, the testimony given in its proper time. And that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the testimony, it's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the apostolic circle given to us. And Paul says in verse 6, for this purpose I was appointed a herald. That is one who speaks loudly and accurately. That's what a herald is of a message. And an apostle a witness of the resurrection of Christ, an authoritative uh, witness to his truth. I'm telling the truth, he says, I'm not lying, a teacher of the true faith to Gentiles. And that need for testimony is why we pray for mission partners. That need for testimony is why some of us may be enabled by God to go and work in other cultures. That need for testimony is why we pray for God's work throughout the world. Whether or not we ourselves are directly involved in testimony to a particular culture, testimony must be given, and we need to be part of praying for that. So as I finish, let me say uh, a couple of things. First of all, one of the implications of this little passage is that a church must never metamorphose into being a club. A club? There's nothing wrong with a club. You know, you join a tennis club, it's a tennis club. But however welcoming a tennis club is, it's for people who play tennis. If you have an orchestra, nothing wrong with an orchestra. But if you're going to join an orchestra, you've got to be able to play a musical instrument. It's it's for people who share some common, something in common, some common interest, some common ability or whatever. And it is desperately easy for a church to metamorphose into a club. It's a little bit like sometimes you get a... um one of those wonderful variegated shrubs with different colors on the leaf. And sometimes I think the the, the gardeners tell us a a variegated shrub can can sort of degenerate into a shrub with just one color of leaf. And it's desperately easy for a church to do that. The moment a church begins to to, to say, "I, I belong to church because I like the people in church because they're people like me. Maybe may be the same ethnicity, it may be the same educational background, it may be the same culture. It may just be that I laugh at their jokes and they laugh at my jokes. But they are, in one way or another, they are people like me. And the moment church becomes like that, and I think I'd like to go to church because I like the people in church because they're like me. The moment a church becomes that, it becomes a club. And always a church needs to have in mind the truth of this passage, that there is one God and one mediator, and it is the purpose and will and pleasure of God that all kinds of people from different cultures, different ethnicities, different educational backgrounds, different nationalities uh, should should be saved and come to Christ. And therefore the outward-looking focus, which is so uncomfortable, it's so uncozy, it's so unpolitically correct, is absolutely vital if we're going to maintain our nature as church. So let's be careful. Let's encourage one another not to be a club. And the other thing I want to say is this, that I began with that, I think, moving story of that Welshman, that courageous 19th century Welshman. But if you and I are going to give our lives for the gospel of Christ, and I'm not just talking about the staff... (laughs) Every Christian is called upon to give his or her life for the gospel of Christ. If we're going to do that, we are going to get pushed outside our comfort zone. We're going to get pushed outside our comfort zone in our prayers. We're going to get pushed outside our comfort zone in our giving. We're going to get pushed outside our comfort zone in who we speak to, who we befriend, and where we go. I have no desire to learn Luxembourgish. I didn't know it existed as a language. But if there's half a million people for whom that's their heart language, somebody needs to learn that language and go and do that work. Wasn't that marvelous to hear about that? But there's a cost. And we're only going to do that if we are deeply convinced and our prayers have been shaped by this conviction that there is one God, that he wants people from all over the world to be saved, that he's appointed one mediator. And with that conviction, we will go. And like that wonderful Welshman who was beheaded age 27, his life such a waste, we will find, as the Lord Jesus taught, that when a seed falls into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. Now, may that be true of us. I don't know how many there are of us here this morning, but wouldn't it be wonderful if in years to come, And it may be many years to come. It it should be seen that for every one of us here, there was a falling into the ground and a dying and a bearing of much fruit. Let's encourage one another to be that kind of, of church. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. God, our Father, we praise you that there is one true God. We thank you for the wonderful gift of the Lord Jesus, the mediator who gave himself as a ransom. We praise you for the appointment of heralds and apostles at the beginning of the Christian church. We praise you for those who down the years have heralded and borne witness to Christ. And we pray that we might be those who, fired by that same conviction, uh, give ourselves for the gospel of Christ in whatever way we can. We ask it in his name. Amen.